Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And now let me kind of set this up for you. What has happened is, uh, as Jesus has promised, the Holy Spirit has been poured out um, on uh, the 120 people gathered in the upper room. And Peter has, under the anointing, under the power of the Holy Spirit, began to preach the gospel to those who, who are wondering about what this miracle is that is taking place in their midst. And he preaches the gospel, and we come all the way to his concluding statement of this great, powerful, first gospel sermon in history, his concluding statement in verse 36. And this is what we read, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what is our response to this message we have heard? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I am um, beginning today a two-week mini-series. Now, those of you that have been around me for several years know that I don't do two weeks very well. Usually I do about two-year series, but I'm going to try to do a two-week mini-series. And I want to try to bring some biblical clarity. In other words, shine the light on some passages or some, some things in Scripture that sometimes... Uh, we're a little bit confused about. So a couple of key things in the life of the church. I'm going to call this series the ordinances of Christ. We're going to be taking a look and discussing baptism this week. Then in two weeks after Father's Day next week, we'll take a look at communion or the Lord's Supper. Now for many of you, um, you may think, well, really, do, is this necessary? Let me explain. The, the, these rites of the church, these ceremonies of the church may be completely misunderstood. Uh, or they may um, have never been really thought about deeply by you. Why? Because maybe you were raised in church. It's just something you always did. People come to church. They they make a profession of faith. We baptize them. And that's kind of how you start off. And, and every week, at least in our, our church, sometimes do it once a month or whatever. But we take the Lord's Supper. And so you may not have really thought about what was happening in those uh, ordinances. Um, so I pray that, that this will, that you'll be fully engaged, that your mind will, will, will uh, just kind of hone in on what we're going to be saying, and that you will grow in your, not just your understanding, but your appreciation of these two powerful ceremonies that were given us, given to us directly by Jesus Christ, and, and told, do this, do this. And so if he told us to do it, is it important? Okay. So let's discover why. Well, baptism and Lord's Supper, you guys might have heard this term, are often called sacraments of the church. You may not know what that word means, but a sacrament, it, very simply, is just a rite or a ceremony 
or something that the church does to unveil a mystery, to say, basically to say, this means this. This is symbolic of this. And that's what a sacrament is. But I'm going to, however, kind of get away from the term sacrament and I'm going to use the word ordinance. Now, let me pause right there and say, it doesn't matter which term you use. I've got great pastor friends who use sacrament. I use ordinance. I've got a couple reasons why I'm going to use ordinance um, uh, instead of sacrament. Many evangelical Protestants have, have made that same decisions throughout the years. But I prefer the word ordinance for a couple of reasons. First, and most importantly, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper were ordained... By Christ, that means that he set them in motion, so therefore they're ordinances. He commanded that they be practiced in perpetuity by the church. Um, by virtue of this command uh, and this, this institution by Jesus, they're ordinances. That he, he intends us to keep them and keep them forever. Also, the idea of sacrament, one of the reasons why I'm avoiding that term, it's been added to as well as distorted into something completely unbiblical by Roman Catholic tradition. In addition, what I mean by that is this, in addition to communion or the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, recognizes five other sacraments. And those five other sacraments are not necessarily either biblically ordained or commanded by Jesus Christ. And so we don't recognize those sacraments. Catholics teach, also this is even more problematic to me, Catholics teach that sacraments actually convey grace. What does that mean? It means that people who are baptized that when they're baptized, they're actually regenerated by that fact. They actually are, are, there's a redemptive quality. They're actually saved through baptism. They also believe that when people partake of the Lord's Supper, that they're taking something, they're partaking of something that actually becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. And, and by doing so, it produces a, a redemptive, spiritually redemptive effect just in the partaking of it. Now, just to be clear, most Protestants like us, and certainly this is our stand at Northridge Life Church, we reject the idea that there's a miraculous inherent quality in the water, in the bread, in, in the contents of the cup. We reject that idea. Uh, we we place our the significance of those those ceremonies those actions by the church rather in the faith that accompanies the rite not in the ceremony or the elements themselves so it's faith that 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 makes these powerful it's not just bread I, i've joked before i buy the bread at walmart nothing holy comes out of walmart so um it's not the bread it's not the juice it's not the water i mean i pay lpnl this church pays lpnl for every time we fill up that tank and it ain't cheap there's nothing holy about that it's not the water it's not the bread it's not the juice it's the faith that accompanies those things that are do that we're doing that make it powerful and all the church said okay good we're all on the same page St. Augustine said that a sacrament, or we're using the word ordinance, is a visible sign. I want you to remember this because we're referring back to it the whole sermon. That, uh, that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. So we will use the word ordinance to distinguish between our doctrine and that held by Roman Catholics. And, and the visible sign in the case of baptism that we're talking about today, the visible sign is water. 
But the invisible grace, which is at work in us when we are baptized, is fivefold. Now we're going to discuss each of those fives, each of those five elements, those five uh, facets of baptism and, and the invisible grace revealed by them in, in detail in a moment. But unlike Catholics, I want to be crystal clear on this point. Unlike Catholics, we do not and will not and never will teach that baptism in and of itself saves you. It doesn't. I know a lot of people that have been baptized and will spend eternity in hell, if I can be that blunt. Baptism does not save you. But rather, what it's meant to be, what the Bible presents it as, is an outward, visible testimony of what God, through the sacrifice, the work of Jesus Christ, has done in you invisibly and internally, internally rather, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's a visible sign of something that's already happened invisibly. Are we all on the same page? Okay. Jesus, we're calling this an ordinance, meaning Jesus ordained it. Jesus ordained baptism by being baptized himself, which is incredible. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. We find the record of that four times in the Gospels, Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1. And the story gives us insight The story of how all that transpired gives us insight as believers in Jesus of what exactly Jesus won for us. What did he purchase for us? What did he obtain for us through his own death and resurrection? In Jesus' own baptism, we see... Now, I want you to get this. You may have seen, heard this story, seen it portrayed in a movie or in a book, and you, you really didn't understand what was happening there. But I want you to know that when we see... Jesus being baptized, what we're looking at is we're seeing Jesus as our substitute standing in our place. Much in the same way that Jesus would be our substitute as he hung on the cross. But a difficulty arises, listen carefully, a difficulty arises when we realize that the New Testament calls the baptism that John the Baptist was, was you know, performing, he called, the, the New Testament calls it a baptism of repentance. Well, why is that problematic? Because the question has to be asked, what was it that Jesus needed to repent of? Speak up, what was it? Absolutely nothing. Man, you guys have been paying attention. Jesus did not need to repent of anything. Of course he didn't. See, then why was he baptized? What was the purpose behind that? And the answer to that question is given to us when John, you know, Jesus comes to John and he says, Hey, I'm ready. I want you to baptize me. And, you know, Jesus, John looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, pump the brakes just a little bit. He said, I don't think you're remembering who's the holy one here. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And you're asking me to baptize you. And this is what Jesus says. Matthew three fifteen. he says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus is saying that he was going to provide as a gift to humanity his own righteousness Fully, 
and perfectly, and he would do so in substitution for all whom the Father would call to believe in himself. He was saying, I am going to demonstrate something here, and in order for me to, to um, present what the message of my gospel to portray the righteousness and, th- and subsequently offer the righteousness to humanity, I need to, to, to make this demonstration, John, and you are the vessel that's going to help me do that. Therefore, his baptism, even without the, the need for personal repentance on behalf of himself, was a foreshadowing of what would be accomplished by our repentance and our faith in Christ signified by our own baptism. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Three things happened at Jesus' baptism that shed a beautiful light upon our understanding of what he accomplished for us in the gospel. You ready for this? So the first thing that that happened at Jesus' baptism that shows us what he accomplished for us in the gospel is the Bible says when he came up out of the water that the heavens above him were literally torn open. Now, what does that foreshadow? See, sin that was endemic to all of us, sin had barred all of us from the presence of God in heaven. We were not allowed. There was a sign at the gate of heaven for you and I that said no trespassing. But when Jesus demonstrated what it would look like for him as the perfect man to stand in our place, all of a sudden the heavens are ripped open. Because of Christ, the way was now opened wide to everyone who would receive his name, receive the forgiveness in his name. Heaven is open. Secondly, the Bible says that the Spirit of God descended upon him. And John, in his uh, gospel, says that the Spirit of God remained on him. But in the passage from Acts chapter 2, we see this. Peter says that the Spirit who had just fallen on the 120 people gathered in the upper room, he says that the Spirit will be given as a gift to all of those who repent and signify that repentance by baptism and whose sins are forgiven as a down payment. The, The gift will be given as a down payment and as a seal for all that Jesus won for us. So this openness to heaven would be further emphasized by the fact of the indwelling, infilling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit coming upon us that says to us as a down payment, it says, hey, this is a taste of what heaven's going to be like, all right? And so when I walk in power that is given to me by the Holy Spirit, when I walk in insight and, and, and the ability to pray, the ability to proclaim the gospel, and all of those things happen that are so far outside of my ability, when I do that, then I am actually walking in something that Jesus, as the, as the first perfect substitute standing for in me after his baptism, demonstrated. He said, the Spirit's coming and he's going to remain on you. Praise God, right? And last, a third thing happened. It's beautiful. The Bible says that for everyone gathered there, they heard the voice of God coming from heaven, saying audibly of Jesus, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. What does that signify? 
See, Paul says, we, we studied this a lot in the last series. Paul says that when we were dead in sin, dead in our trespasses, he uses these terms. He says, we were aliens and we were strangers from God. Not only was there a, a, a no trespassing sign at heaven, but there was this, this gulf, this canyon between us, and we couldn't get across it. We, we had no ability to be known by God. <laughs> but now... Because of Jesus, not only are we known, the Bible says that literally we have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Most High. Now, get this. This is so hard. I've had this conversation with probably, I'm not trying to exaggerate, probably a thousand people over the age, over the, the years, the decades. But, and this is something that we, we resist in our spirit, but it's absolutely biblically true because we've been adopted to His family and we've been granted His repentance right now, right at this very moment, no matter what your, your week has been like, because you have believed in Jesus. Listen to me carefully. God, the Father, is just as well pleased with you as he is with Jesus. That was a tepid response. And I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not judging, I'm not trying to stir something up. It's tepid because we don't really believe it. We believe God cannot be well pleased with me because I know what I've done, I know what I've thought, I know who I've, who I've messed over, I know all that stuff. But I am here to tell you, you are not made righteous by what you do. And you're not made unrighteous through Christ by what you don't do. You are made righteous by the fact that God has seen you through the blood of his son. And right now he looks at you and he says, I am well pleased with you, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And if we really believe that. If we really get a grip on that, it will absolutely revolutionize our Christian life. Now, as a sign, as an agreement of what Christ has accomplished for us, we are commanded in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do we signify that they're truly disciples? He says we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This allows both ourselves and the disciples that we make to share in a deep identification with Christ. This is, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I got to share it. So, um, a couple years ago I was in, I was in Austria with Dave and Katie, uh, Dave, Dave Walt's parents. And, um, and I, and I was there and a day came where they were the, the, the Sunday we happened to be there. Uh, Daryl was with me and Judy. Um, the day that we were there, they were going to baptize some people. And we thought this will be kind of neat to see this cultural thing. And I'm going to tell you, not that, that morning they didn't baptize one single Austrian. Not one. Every one of them that were baptized, there were several of them, were Iranian refugees who used to call on the name of Allah, who came to call on the name of Jesus Christ and signified that discipleship by being baptized. Now, why is that important? Because he said, we go therefore to all nations and we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we're doing is we're signifying, hey, we recognize that you too are a disciple with us. We don't care where you've been, don't care what you've done. We care who you have put your trust in right now. 
And this allows us to, to share in this deep identification with Christ. So talked about five invisible graces. This is the first of the five invisible graces communicated by baptism. The declaration of our association with the triune God. Think about it. Think about Jesus' baptism. The Son stood in our place. The Spirit descended upon all of us who have believed. And the Father has spoken His approval of us in Christ. Now, this is what Galatians says. I love this passage. Paul says to the Galatians, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So I'm telling you, I... I never used to look like Jesus, ever. I never used to act like Jesus. I never used to think like Jesus. But Paul's saying that that the, the what my baptism was symbolizing now is I've kind of put on a Jesus suit. And I'm like, I'm wearing Jesus. I am so closely identified with Jesus that you can't sometimes tell the difference between me and Jesus. Again, we struggle because we don't believe what the Word of God says, Right? It it says that we've put on Christ. I'm walking through this world with all of my ups and downs. I'm wearing Christ. It's a new identity. You guys have heard the term guilty by association. Well, listen, in Christ, you are innocent by association. (laughs) Secondly, and more specifically, second grace, invisible grace, baptism is how we identify with Christ both in his death and resurrection. This takes that association with the triune God, makes it very specific to Christ. In the two clearest passages of the New Testament on baptism as a doctrine for the church, speak of this facet of invisible grace. Romans 6 1 is the most well known. It says, What shall we say then? Paul's asking this rhetorical question Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then he says, By no means. How can we who died to sin? Still live in it. Did you know when you said, I will trust Jesus, you said, I won't trust sin anymore? Did you know that? He said, so he says, how, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he asked this a second rhetorical question. Listen, speaks to us in the church directly. Do you not know? And when he says that, he's saying, uh, guys, you should know this. He says, do you not know that All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying... That the great symbolism of baptism is that of a watery grave. When we immerse people in, in that water, it symbolizes that when Christ died, we actually, being in Christ, died with him and were buried with him. So we don't live in sin anymore. We don't live for sin anymore because we, in a very real sense, through faith, died to sin with Jesus. But there's a secondary symbolism as well. When we're raised up out of the water, it's a bold statement that we have been raised from death just like Christ was. And now, now, we can walk in newness of life. That's why we worry about people who claim to be Christians and yet their new life seems to look exactly like their old life. 
We're not asking you to whip yourself into shape because guess what? You're never going to be able to do it. But there's something about when we identify with Christ's death that the old dead mark kind of stuff in me seems to fall away slowly but surely. And I find that I'm less associated with my death of sin, but more associated with my resurrected life of Christ. Colossians 2.1 is similar. It says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now listen, real short phrase here, having been buried with him in what? In baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is a slightly different restatement of Romans 6. By faith in Christ, the power of our sinful nature has been nullified. Now, this always creates questions. Well, what about the sins I did this week, this morning, this month, this, this year? That, that you're missing the entire point. Your sin nature is always going to be with you until the day that Jesus, in his glory, allows you to set aside this body, this mindset. And and the Bible says when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And in him, there is no sin. So when we see him, we'll be like him. But what's happening, what, what, what you miss because of the struggles you have, this back and forth struggle with sin, you're missing the fact that Christ Death declared that the power of your sin nature is null and void. The power of your sin nature is null and void. What does that mean? It means that judgment has no bearing on you because of your sin, because of your struggle. It means that you are no longer cursed to remain there. But through the process of the Holy Spirit sanctification, you're going to grow and change and become more holy day by day by day because he has nullified, he has brought to an end the power of sin. And that is the great bold declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin, Paul says in Romans 6, shall no longer have mastery over your body. There's a new sheriff in charge of Mark Sharp. And it's not sin anymore. And so now we can walk pleasing to the Lord as he works to change us in his image. But thirdly, there's the invisible grace of cleansing from sin. We all know that water is the primary vehicle for washing the body. I hope everybody in the last 24 to 48 hours took a shower or a bath. We all know that. You'll know if they didn't, if you're sitting next to them. Um, we all know that. And this symbolism of the, 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 the ability of water to wash us clean wasn't lost on the biblical writers. When Saul of Tarsus, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, met the disciple Ananias after he was converted on the road to Damascus, Ananias told him these words. Acts twenty two sixteen. He says, And now why do you wait? Watch. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, let me go back to something I said earlier in the message. Does the water of baptism wash away our sins? Absolutely not. The blood of Jesus washes away our sins. But what he's saying is, identify with what has happened spiritually with a, with a, uh, a, a literal physical, visible symbol. Be washed from your sin so that, so that you can call on his name. A fourth invisible grace communicated by baptism is to symbolize our escape, our escape from, the, from divine judgment. Now, we don't talk about this a lot. 
But when Paul says in Romans 6, which we just read, that we were buried therefore with him, um, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, it means more than just that we died to the power of sin by our association with Christ. Pay careful attention. I want you to get this. But it also means that our sin was judged in Christ's death as well. The Bible says that sin carries with it punishment. It carries with it judgment. It never, you know, a lot of times we view grace as God kind of winking his eye and giving us a free pass on the sin. And I'm telling you, God, I want you to hear me, church. God will never, ever, ever, ever give you a pass for sin. Not the sins you committed before the cross, not the sins you committed in this life, not the sins you you commit until your death. You will never get a free pass on that. So what has to happen? What has to happen is that all the judgment for my sin that I have earned, I didn't earn my salvation, but listen, I've earned my judgment. I've earned it. And all the, the judgment that I have earned has to be, if I don't want to pay it, it has to be placed, that account has to be placed somewhere else. Can I recommend where to place it? I recommend the beaten, humiliated, mocked, tortured, pierced body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's where I see the cost of my sin and I see the judgment that it brought. So baptism helps us to understand this. Now we know this is simple science. I'm no genius. You guys all don't say amen. Um, (laughs) No human being can live unaided underwater for very long. Would we all agree on that? And, And oftentimes in scripture, we see water used as an outpouring of God's wrath. For example, Noah's time, God floods the whole earth and just basically destroys everything living that wasn't on the ark. When God delivered his people out of Egypt. They walk right through the the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptian army follows in. What does God do? He pours the Red Sea over them. They all drown. When Jonah had disobeyed God, what happens? In order to, to assuage the judgment of God, what happens? They chuck him in the water. But baptism, this is great. Baptism gives us the confidence that all of our sin has already been judged. In Christ's suffering on the cross. It's not will be. It's not, you know, we're not going to have to go to purgatory and burn off all the sin that we've collected up. Every bit of it, past, present, future, has been nailed to Jesus on the cross. And he has paid the debt in full, 100%. There's nothing left. I don't even have to leave a tip. He paid it all. He paid it all. So that when we come to the, 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 the water and, and we may enter our watery grave under God's wrath and God's judgment for our sin, when we emerge, we come up to a heavenly shout of, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because judgment is over. We just sang it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man, not even my own, can ever pluck pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That's what Jesus paid for. That's what baptism symbolizes. It is the end of judgment and the beginning of new life in Christ. Lastly, 
Fifth grace, baptism demonstrates obedience to Christ for incorporation into his church. The passage that we read in Acts shows a threefold progression. They received the word and repented, step one. They were baptized, step two. And then, step three, they were added to the church. And this, by the way, is not just an Acts chapter two thing. We see this over and over and over and over all through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. But the reason I bring it up to you today is because this is greatly neglected in the church today, in the body of Christ. See, many churches, sadly, have lowered the bar of membership to not to repentance and baptism, but who's willing to show up. Who's willing to show up without ever seeking evidence of true repentance and let alone requiring the public profession of belief and surrender that's made only by baptism? The other elders and I, right this minute, right now, at this season, we're in the process of defining and clarifying what it really means to be a member of Northridge Life Church. We're really trying to help get a grasp on that so we can communicate it to you and to others. And I assure you, I promise you this, that this threefold process will be absolutely central to that clarification of what it means to be a member of Northridge Life. Belief and repentance, baptism, and only then added to the church. If you say you believe, if you say you believe, but you have no willingness to obey Christ in baptism, listen, I apologize for how this may sound, but I can't apologize for what I think is biblical. If you say you believe, but have no willingness to follow Christ in baptism, you cannot be counted as a member of his body. Now listen, I am not saying, I want to be clear on this, I'm not saying, because I don't have any biblical authority to do so, that you're not saved. What I am saying, and with confidence, that I cannot make, Dave, Don, Darrell, we cannot make a confident assertion of your relationship to Christ. Why? Because you're unwilling to obey Him in the most simple command He gave you. (laughs) Hear me? Baptism is the single... Listen to this, because this is not what, what, I'm not trying to make an us and them mentality, but this is not what many churches are proclaiming now. But baptism is the single, the one, that means the only one, the single biblically prescribed method of declaring publicly our association with Christ. Why do I say that? Because right now we've kind of dumbed it down to, if you'll say this prayer with me, You'll be recognized as associated with Christ. If you raise your hand at this rally or event or service, you'll be recognized as making an association with Christ. If you give money or perform some duty, you'll be recognized as having an association with Christ. But listen to me. This is not what Jesus commanded. He didn't. He said, go make disciples and baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I've given you five reasons why the the, the expression of those invisible graces are are so vital to being baptized. It, It makes a powerful symbolic demonstration of where your life is in relation to Christ's gospel, and it must not be neglected. So wrapping up, who should be baptized? I'm going to suggest three types of people this morning. There's some who have 
come maybe recently to faith in Christ? What does that look like? It means that, that you knew you weren't, and now you know you are. And you have put your trust completely in Christ. It doesn't mean, when I say those who have come to put their, uh, their faith in Christ, it doesn't mean those who are perfect or those who are inordinately spiritual, who go around quoting King James all the time. It doesn't mean those who have determined, or it does mean rather, those who have determined that Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and death. The only hope that you can have. It's those who realize that they have no option but to run to him for mercy and grace. Those who desire to be eternally safe under the protection of his wings. So that's group number one. The second group is maybe those who came to faith years ago. You wouldn't, you wouldn't doubt at all that you're a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're not a Christian. Yet for one reason or another, whether it was logistics or timing or opportunity or whatever it was, you've never obeyed Christ in this matter. You may think, I've been a Christian for such a long time, it doesn't even really matter. We'll let the, the newbies do that, you know, because everyone knows I'm a Christian. I don't need to make public testimony. But can I, can I just let you in on this little secret? Let me remind you that there is absolutely no expiration date on obedience. There's no expiration date. We need to obey Christ and, and obey Him when He calls us to do things that, 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 that uh, He has a reason to command us to. So you need to make a public, obedient profession of the fact that you are connected, that you're associated with Christ. And my question to you is, as a fellow believer, as a brother or sister, why wouldn't you? When, when Philip uh, preached to the, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, the Ethiopian eunuch's response was, I mean, he just heard the gospel like that. I mean, we're seconds away from his, his connecting with Jesus. And he says, well, look, here's water. Right there, look, here's water. Why can't I get baptized now? And what was Philip going to say? Well, we have this discipleship class we'd like you to go through first. (laughs) No, belief was there. He said, let's do it. Let's baptize them. And so I'm telling you, why would you? Why would you wait? Lastly, there's a third group. There are those, and this happens all the time. People ask me this all the time because it happens very frequently. Um, We do not teach infant baptism here. We believe that it's very vital that we, we teach what's called believer's baptism, that people need to have made a profession of faith in Christ before they can be baptized. There's a lot of biblical reasons for that. I could turn this into a two-week sermon, but as, as I said, you know I'd go a year, so I'm not even going to start. There are also people that have been baptized earlier in life, but you realize it was just another notch in your works-based religious belt. Got to be baptized because... Uh, I got to satisfy a spouse or a, a parent. I got to satisfy a pastor. I got to satisfy somebody. Maybe uh, you were a child and you indicated that you wanted to be baptized, but you had not a clue what, what it was that you were doing. So what I want to do, I want to invite you, if that's you, without shame, no shame in that at all. I want to invite you to the waters of baptism to make your public statement of belief in the absolutely unearnable grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement that is. To say, hey, I thought I got it. I thought I understood this stuff. I didn't understand anything. But now I understand that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And so on that statement, I I, I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and, and be associated with his His 
death and resurrection and his church. So here's what I want you to ask you to do. It's application time. It's, it's, it's what does this mean? What am I asking you to do? Here's what I want to ask you to do. If you fall in any one of those three categories, or maybe none of them, maybe there's a conviction in your heart that, man, this is something I need to take care of. This is something I need to do. Then I want to invite you right now, grab a white card in the seat pocket in front of you, and all you got to do is give me your name, give me your information, phone number, email, and, and just say, I want to be baptized. And drop it in the box. And I promise you this week I'll be in touch with you. I want to, to bring you in and, and let you experience the joy of experiencing through the visible sign, the water, five invisible graces of association with Christ. Does that sound good to anybody? Sure. Well, I'd love to have you. So, so take that. Don't wait. Grab the card. Get it filled out, get, put it in the box, and I will call you uh, this week, I promise.